I'm your host, Rena Friedman Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Hey, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mom is calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy because he knows you best. He's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees possibilities. Today's guest is a special one, Batya Unger-Sargon. She is the author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. She's also the opinion editor at Newsweek and all over Twitter. And today we're going to talk about how you cannot have peace without valuing human life. And we need to learn how to compromise on extreme issues. Batya, welcome to the Better Call Daddy show. Hey. Hi. I am so excited to talk to you. Oh my gosh. I loved your interview with Megan from Unspeakable. Oh yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. We had a good time. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I feel like she got so much out. I am super curious. We could start with just like getting a little bit personal about how you were raised religious and then you stepped away from that for a bit and tried the secular thing and then came back to being religious. Right. Yeah. I joke that everyone sort of eventually, we all just become our parents at some point. Like you just hit 35 and suddenly you're like, oh, yeah, (laughs) I'm my parents. So that happened to me. (laughs) Yeah, I would love to talk about that because I feel like I've spent a lot of time exploring that actually, right? Like what have you been taught and what do you actually believe? Mm -hmm. It's so hard to figure out who you actually are. I was raised very orthodox and one of the things we talked about a lot was how like there was this envy for people who were bal tshuva, which means that you become religious later in life as opposed to from from birth, which means you were raised from. And there was this jealousy because there was this feeling that they chose it, whereas we could never have made that choice and then somebody recently said to me well you got to have it both ways because you were both from from birth and balchu <laughs> and i liked that a lot <laughs> that is so cool so i grew up like conservative slash i would think kind of reform and i mean i went to like a conservative shul but those have changed now i became religious like mid-20s i got aged <laughs> 
I don't know if you know what that is, but basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and went on this singles trip to Israel. And, you know, I had worked in the entertainment industry and still felt like something was missing no matter how many times I got my name in the credits. And so I went on this trip and they showed me the beautiful side of Judaism. And I made some really great girl friendships with other Jewish women. And that really like changed something in me. But the thing is, is like taking on all of these rules that you didn't grow up with is exciting in the beginning, but very hard to maintain if you don't have a community and you don't have that ruchnias or, you know, if you don't have that example oh. in your family, like my grandparents weren't Shomer Shabbos or my parents weren't keeping the Sabbath. So very, very challenging. Totally. Yeah. And I think for me also the when I initially started coming back, I had this feeling of like, my ancestors literally sacrificed their lives for the right to like go to the mikvah, keep Shabbos, keep kosher. And I'm in the freest country that ever existed choosing not to because I'm like, just can't be bothered. Like it seemed so unacceptable to me. I just woke up one day and that was unacceptable to me. And so slowly started to just almost like an ancestor worship kind of a way. Like I'm so proud of where I come from, you know, my family lineage on both sides and wanting to just live in a way that would have made them proud and that they would have been able to recognize themselves in. And because I think I built back up to the observance that I'm at now, it didn't feel like I was sacrificing that much. And it did feel like at every level, okay, now I'm ready to take this. Now I'm ready to take this on now I'm ready to take this on and then of course like there is that because I was raised with it it's very nostalgic and homey and like there is like a return to home feeling about it but I think also like at a larger level like our religion gives us something very very cool which is like a kind of a physical manifestation of spirituality in praxis like to where you're not just sitting alone with your thoughts and having an experience but you're actually like embodying something that is absolutely abstract and conceptual in a very physical way. I think, you know, mikvah is the best example of that. You're literally immersing in water to bring a spiritual element to the erotic component of your life, which is a really cool experience. But also what you feel like our world right now is very like immediate and fast. And I'm in the media, I'm a journalist, like the news cycle, it's really fast. And like, there's something about doing these rituals where you feel like you're literally like plugging a socket into an electric current that is eternal like it's we are the forever people we have been doing this forever and we will be doing this forever and like there's something about that that there's something about just being a person who answers like not to the social media mob or to your boss or to anybody but who answers like to the god of abraham and isaac and jacob that is just like it's it gives you so much strength and power and and i feel like you get that power like from you you can get it every time you make like a blessing on a piece of fruit or every time you say, you know, every time, you know, you choose I eat out because I have to eat out because it's part of my job is, you know, being with people. But every time you choose the vegetarian option, which is often like very unappetizing, <laughs> but you just get that hit of like, it's almost like a drug. Like it's like you feel invincible because you feel like I'm not invincible as a person, but the concept that's living through me, the idea that's living through me as I make these choices every day is eternal. It will, it will exist forever. And that's an incredibly special and privileged feeling. That's fire. I felt that. <laughs> that's really good. I have to say, even before this, I was like, should I throw on my wig or should I not? Because sometimes I wear it, sometimes I don't. But I was like, dude, 
her mom's like the daughter of a rabbi and her dad is like this sodic that my husband looked up to for 10 years in Chicago. I'm throwing it on. <laughs> I, for what it's worth, I'm not wearing my wig. Although when my mom sees this, she'll be like, were you wearing your shades on? <laughs> I also like, I really connect to what you said about mikvah because for a long time, I really, I felt connected so much so that I feel like I'm struggling with my religiosity right now with yeah. all that's happening in the oh world. Oh my but, God, me too. Totally. But I mean, the mikvah yeah. thing I really connected to. I thought it was such a beautiful ritual and I never was like a big prayer in my life. Like I would have like conversations with God and that to me was like me praying. And so when I went to the mikvah, I was like, and even when I light candles, like some of these rituals that are specific to women, I thought about other people that I would want to pray for or other there are things in my life that I would want to pray for because I was like, dude, like God's hearing me right now or like I'm doing something yeah, spiritual. Totally. So let me throw it all in. You know, what is your Myers-Briggs personality type? I think I'm an ENFP. What about yeah, that, you? That tracks, yeah, I'm an ENFJ, but I, I feel like somebody should write a book that's like how to be religious for each of the types because I struggled growing up because I felt like there were a lot of parts of religion that didn't fit with who I knew I my what I knew my character to be. And I feel like now it's like, well, yeah, there are different personality types, but there's different ways of like approaching, you know, or different ways of finding meaning, like what you're saying about how, well, this didn't suit my personality, but this really did. Like, I feel like there should be more of that, like, like just more discourse around that. Like, you know, this part is going to be hard for you, but then you could focus on this thing. <laughs> I like that. That's really interesting. I don't know why that made me think about just, I've had relatives reach out to me and say things like, you know, when you stop wearing open-toed shoes and shaitals, like that's when you'll be religious. And I feel like there's so many people in the religious community that focus on externals. And I think like having created this podcast and like putting myself out there and researching the stories and the people who I have on and just the more conversations that I have, I'm just like, this is who I am. And you know what? I can wear a shaital and open-toed shoes. I can also like put on a skirt to go pick up my kids and then go to the gym in yoga pants and I can be me and right. you know your problem with me is totally your problem like that really tracks with ENFP by the way because <laughs> they have a very strong sense of like their emotional state and their sense of themselves in a way that is like a lot of other types don't have like they don't know how they feel like you'll ask them oh how do you they don't know but ENFPs have a very strong moral compass and a very strong sense of like their own values and that's like a real a very beautiful mm -hmm. character trait yeah I think I think it's kind of funny like to me I find it extremely charming when people are like competitive and catty about like spiritual religious stuff like I just I just think that's like hilarious and charming and funny and and bizarre and like very hard to to explain to people like people think oh you're religious that's gonna you know you'll have like a no you're still like we're still women like we still get into these like you know catty like competitive whatever it's just like you do it about like religious stuff I just think that's like I, I think it's hilarious <laughs> I want to actually relate that to something I heard you say with Megan. You said that, you know, your mom is the daughter of a rabbi and your mm -hmm. dad is like a reverend and they have like this sexy de intellectual <laughs> debate about things. And I think that that is so cool. They do. They are. They are very, their spiritual and religious lives are very much in conflict with each other, but that is a big part of their marriage. And it's like a big part of like, there's nobody they'd rather be fighting with about this stuff. And I think I grew up thinking that that was like, 
like it was like this glue, like it wasn't like harmonious by any stretch of the imagination, but it was like they were both very deeply committed to their spiritual intellectual quest. They're both very, very smart people. And they're both extremely invested in the competition between them about whose worldview was going to like prevail in the I think that's really, really cool. Like it like they continue to take each other's intellectual and spiritual life extremely seriously. Like, and there's no like there's no nobody gets a pass ever like it's it's always at a 10 or at an 11 and like that's just a very cool way to grow up like it's you know what I mean it's not the most like calm or peaceful environment but it means that like every Shabbos meal is going to be like the stakes are impossibly high about like about whether the Torah is going to pass muster and like I don't know it's like a it's like a cool it means that your intellectual and your spiritual life are extremely important and like I think that that's something that like most people you're sitting at a shop's table and someone gives a Torah and everyone's like oh that was very nice but like at my parents shop's table someone gives a Torah and like it's you know what I mean like oh it is on you know what I mean like it doesn't just get a pass and my husband's like that as well like if I give a Torah there's no like oh that's so nice babe like that's so interesting it's always like wait a minute (laughs) and you got to be ready to defend it and I think that that's I think it's really cool to take intellectual ideas and spiritual ideas seriously like that I mean obviously I have a huge sense of humor about it because I I do think it's funny and charming and like you do have to be able to see the other side of it but like there's something about that that is like like it's good to take these ideas seriously like they're not just it's it's not just a game you know yeah that's how I grew up (laughs) did you want to marry somebody that could get in the fight yeah yeah (laughs) Oh, yeah, there was that's that was not even. (laughs) Well, I needed someone who could handle me. That's (laughs) that too. It's funny, though, I have five siblings. I wonder if any of them would recognize this description of our home. Like, I'm sure we each experienced it very differently. A lot of them are ENFPs, by the way. Shout out to Aliza and Naftali. <laughs> it's just interesting. Are you, how many siblings do you have? I have two little sisters. I think I know one of your sisters. Yes. Fiona. Yeah, yeah. So I sent two of my kids to her dance studio when oh, we lived in Chicago. Funny. She's very sweet. She's an incredible human. I mean, I just so totally admire her and look up to her. Do you and your siblings have the same interpretation of like what your home was like growing up? That's a great question. (laughs) I think we are pretty in alignment with Uh that actually. And that would be interesting to discuss. Sometimes I tell my dad, I'm like, dude, my sisters are in la la land. I tell them when they're completely out there. Do you? I think that, where are you in the birth order? I'm the oldest. You're the How oldest. about you? I'm the, well, I'm the oldest girl. I have an older brother. I don't think, I mean, it's funny. I'm like, no, I would never say that, but they would, they would probably be like, of course you would say, I would have to ask them. <laughs> That's so interesting. I was also wondering, because I know that you have subbed on your dad's podcast. Your dad's a podcast or my husband listens to your dad's podcast and oh, loves no. it, always feels inspired by it. Have you ever interviewed your dad? I have not. My older brother has. I have never interviewed my dad. I think that that would be super interesting. You should totally do that. He's such an interesting person. He's an incredible person. He's, if most of us lived three lifetimes, we would not do as much good as he does every week in seven days. He's just an incredible, incredible, incredible human being. And he's very, very, he doesn't see himself that way. It it pours out of him, just giving and giving and giving to anybody who needs literally the kind of person I mean I've never met anybody like him I there's that's you're so lucky (laughs) I'm so lucky I am that's a tremendous blessing so lucky to have had my parents as my parents both of them incredible 
human beings. Do you call your dad and ask for advice? Or I also want to add on to that. Do you give your dad advice? I call him and ask him Shyla's like today I had to call him because we got a kitten and I thought the litter should be in the office, right? I had, there's like this little corner where there's a window, but then my husband decided that none of my sparum could be in the office if the cat litter was in here. Cause I made the office into a bathroom and you wanted to move them into the bedroom. And I was like, well, that's not, I know that's not kosher. So I had to call my dad and ask him where to put the sparum. <laughs> When I was little, he was, and I would ask him, Shiloh, he was always very like make kill. He would always, he was always like, oh, just, you know, do whatever's best. He was like much easier going. Now, when I call him the last two or three years, he's gotten very like, everything's no, no, no. Can I use the dishwasher for flay shakes and then use it for milk? No. Can I do that? No. Everything's like these days, it's all no. Yeah. <laughs> so that's mostly what I call to ask him about. Do you ever ask for his thoughts on any of your writings? Or your opinion pieces for Newsweek? <laughs> he would never tell me if he didn't agree with me. He would never. And also, he's like me. Like, he's very open-minded. He's very, very open-minded. And he's very, like, he's just, like, a total empath. So he's he would, A, never tell me if he didn't agree with me and I had put myself out there on something I think he would feel like that and also he's very like he hears all sides he's he's a, he's totally non-political hear one side then I'll hear another side and mostly his heart will just go out to everybody so he's very very not political and all of my writing is political my mom is extremely vocal about whether she agrees with me or nice um, has that so ever she, yeah. made you think twice about no 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 I mean it's you know it is what it is I have a very different interpretation of the religion to both of my parents so and I feel like part of you know answering to the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob means you got to do your best and sometimes that means just accepting you see you see the religion differently than even people that you like deeply deeply admire I mean I I joke like yeah we all become our parents but I think like even the things that I don't agree with my parents about, I'm so blessed and grateful to have been raised in their home because they're just the endless chesed, just the living for other people. I've I've literally never met people like my parents ever. And it's just, I know I will never live up to their example. I will never do a fraction of the good that they do every single week for their community and everybody in their lives. And they don't even tell anybody about it. You find out about it three years later from somebody or six months later, your sister drops something just by the by and you're like I can't believe they just incredible people so I even though like I don't a hundred percent we don't not in agreement on like intellectual issues so you know on everything but the example that they set of like constant intellectual inquiry and just constantly nothing should like my father's like a sieve nothing should nothing he gets belongs to him it always there's always somebody who needs it more like it's just like a those were the values that I grew up with and I just feel even though I know I will never be I will never look up to the example that they said I feel so honored and and blessed to have been there to be their daughter that's really beautiful. Have they ever told you that they're proud of you? Yeah, they're very, I mean, especially now, I think when I was like more, more woke, more on the left, like five years ago, it was like, I, my mom had a lot of trouble with that. She was not, she was, she didn't like that. Now, of course, like I'm more, you know, whatever I am, like on this intellectual journey, you know, I think a lot of us actually after the last few weeks, my awakening about the left happened in 2019. But I think for a lot of people it happened last week and the week before and just seeing that just the absolute that the left to be a member in good standing on the left, you have to sign on to the wholesale murder of Jews. And I think that become very clear and there's going to be a lot of people sort of rethinking that stuff. So that happened to me much sooner. So now I think it's much, you know, I'm my views are much more palatable. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, I think they're very, especially like for my mom, when she would see me like standing up for from Jews, Orthodox Jews during the COVID, like when they were being attacked a lot, like that, she felt really proud of that. And yeah, I think my dad's probably much more left than I am at this point. So I don't know how, but again, he would never, he's, yeah. <laughs> how would you define woke? To me, wokeness is when you replace a worldview that says, you know, there are things that are right and things that are wrong with a worldview that says there's only powerful versus powerless. And then you superimpose kind of race onto that. So you say the white people are the oppressors and inherently evil and the people of color are the oppressed and inherently virtuous. And that's why that explains why the media has basically become the stenographers of Hamas, because they see Hamas as being less powerful than Israel and therefore more virtuous. So they're inherently on their side and Israel they see as white and powerful. So they are inherently suspicious and suspect and oppressors and colonizers whose children deserve to be butchered and raped. <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk about what's happening in Israel, but I mainly am just sharing other people's content. Yeah. It's really tough, I feel like, to even be able to share your truth. Do you feel scared um, by the mob on social media? No, I think in 2019, it was very scary. In 2021, it was very scary. In 2023, I'm not going to list the atrocities. I try not to. Everybody knows at this point. It was so, so blatant. I think there's just been a huge like mask off moment for the left in a way that is like, I hate to say it like this, but it's like a tiny silver lining. It should not have taken this, but I, I think... You you know, in 2019, it was like, it was very hard for people who even good people who were leftists to get it in 2021. It was very hard because, you know, Hamas would send rockets and they would kill one or two people to us. That's like a huge tragedy. But then Israel would respond and try to eliminate the threat and kill 500. And so to even like, I think a normal person who has a good heart who can tell right from wrong was not woke. They would say, well, they killed two and they killed 500. Like, and they, it would be, you'd have to explain to them, like, you know, what's at stake here? Like, well, yes, because like to kill the people who are the murderers, they're holding people in front of them. If you don't do that, you're just saying it's going to happen again. Like you have to have some way of responding. A normal person could maybe struggle with that idea. A good person could struggle with that idea. In this case, it's just so disgustingly blatant. The horror was just that I think you really saw like all of the people sort of who had been on the side of the left and the Palestinians, you could hear in their silence that they were running to their contacts to be like, wait, explain to me again why it's okay to mass rape these 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 concert goers and like why Israel's still the bad guy, even though they dismembered babies in front of their parents. Like, explain to me why this like you could see, you could tell that it had penetrated. And you could see the media trying to correct for it and try to go back onto Hamas's side this week. And you could see that failing too. Like, it's just astonishing. I really feel like there's like a real, like, there's just a real moment here of reckoning. And this morning, Greta Thunberg, who's the like moron at the head of this like climate thing, this climate movement, she posted this picture <laughs> and it said like free Palestine or whatever. And then she had to take the picture down. I don't know if you saw this. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> she took the picture down and put it back up, but it was cropped because in the initial photo, there was a stuffed animal 
of an octopus and she posted, you know, it has come to my attention that that was perhaps anti-Semitic because that was a symbol of anti-Semitism. So I reposted the photo without the octopus. And it was like, you basically are sitting there with a sign supporting Hamas and you think your little octopus is the problem. I was just laughing so hard also because the octopus looks very angry. <laughs> But it was just like, that's it. Wow. Like if she thinks that Jews are going to now support like a thousand percent of the Jews just woke up and said, my God, maybe climate change is a hoax. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's like if we're if you're going to ask us to choose between supporting Hamas and supporting climate deniers, it's not going to be hard for us to make that decision. And I think that that's it's just great. I sent that photo. To, you know, I was like, this is great. This is everyone's like, oh, this is terrible. No, this is great. I had that realization in 2019. I woke up and was like, wow, the left needs me to denounce Jews to belong to it. Surely they're not only wrong about this. Like, it's like, surely they're not accidentally wrong about Jews and right about everything else. And suddenly I started thinking, oh, maybe they're wrong about this. Maybe they're wrong about that. Maybe they're wrong about that. And I ended up somewhere in the middle. Like some things I still agree with them. Some things I'm like, oh, they're just as wrong about this as they are about Jews, you know? And I think a lot of people are having that right now, not just Jewish people, but a lot of liberals are really having this. Why is it that members of the Democratic Party are standing with Hamas? How did we get here? What mistakes have I made? <laughs> you know, so I think it's, you know, in some ways, like, despite the horror, there's, you know, interesting things happening. Do you feel like a bridge because you have been a part of the other camp? I can't be a bridge because there's a thing that makes you able to be a bridge and I'm not willing to do the thing. And the okay. thing that makes you able to be a bridge is to say that, like, you know, Donald Trump is the worst thing that happened to America. And I'm not willing to say that. And so I'm not able to be a bridge. Like if you notice a lot of the anti-woke liberals, a lot of the people who are like, hey, the woke movement is problematic. Hey, the left got too went too far. A lot of them are sort of like they really, really, really hate Trump. And that is how they're able to say to the people who are sort of waffling on the border, like, oh, come join me and come back to liberalism. I also hate the big bad Trump. So we agree on that. It's kind of like for us, like like if you agree with me that Jews deserve to live, I'm going to be willing to rethink a lot of my other views of you. Like, like John Fetterman, I'm not a fan of this person, but he stood up to the squad and took a lot of hits for it. I'm going to rethink a lot of what I think about that person because that took a lot of bravery on the issue that is very close to my heart. So for a lot of people, that issue is Trump. And I just became convinced, I became convinced that that was one of the things that they are very wrong about, that he is one one of the things they're very wrong about and wrong about him for the same reasons that they're wrong about a lot of other things. So I, I can't play that role, but I'm not going to lie about a conclusion I've arrived at just to help them get out of the mess that they made. Also, because it's my job to tell the truth. <laughs> I've actually seen some anti-Trumpers, though, stand with Israel, and that has made me happy. Yeah, yeah it's great. It's great. But it's then great. on the flip side, I even have family members that are like Jews for Palestine, and I'm having a really hard mm. time understanding that. I'm trying. Mm. Yeah, that's very, it's very hard. <laughs> and and the funny thing is, is like they get elevated by the squad. Like the squad needs a needs Jewish cover, right? Like the the anti-Semitic left needs Jewish cover, and so a movement like Jewish Voice for Peace, which is like just completely anti-Semitic, they will get elevated by 
these like woke anti-Semitic people who want to be able to say, look, we have Jews with us who also stand against Israel, who are also anti-Zionist. And so they give them this platform and they give them this voice. It's disgusting. Like, I <laughs> I mean, to see, yeah, it's just, it's terrible. But it's, but it's, you know what? Very hard to say this and it's very hard to do this. But like, you can only convince people with love. Like you can't actually yell at people or insult people into thinking like you. You can only embrace them and love them. And like, to the extent that you can keep having relationships with those people, like not even talking about this just embracing them like that is the only way to convince anybody of anything and so if you're able to do that that's the that's the that's the bridge is love love is the bridge <laughs> i actually love that you said that and i'm a part of like a private whatsapp group with this other podcaster i'm going to give him a shout out chaz volk he has a podcast called the bad jew but it's not about being a bad jew it's just like having felt like that in a time in your life or whatever. So I was on that and I'm in his like private chat and I was saying to him like, have you unfollowed anyone during this time? Because there are definitely people from both sides who follow me and I've lost some followers and it's fine. But I decided not to unfollow because like you said, if I can present things in a loving way and try to have understanding for other people, maybe they can do that back. It's yeah, I, I struggle very much between on the one hand wanting to say the truth in the most palatable way that I can so that maybe somebody could change their mind and then wanting to like give voice to the rage that I know so many people who agree with me feel and don't have my platform. And it's a constant struggle, like which to go with, because I think when you're really angry, nobody can hear you. But also those people deserve a voice. They deserve to hear what they are feeling said articulately, but also also, what if you could have convinced somebody if you were picturing not the people who agree with you, but the people who don't agree with you when you were trying to say it? I will say some people who were extremely mean to me, like publicly denounced me as a racist in 2019 because I was calling out anti-Semitism on the left are in my DMs being like, wow, problem with anti-Semitism on the left. <laughs> and part of me wants to be like, you know where you can get off because you literally told millions of your followers that I was an anti-Semite or that I was a racist and a horrible person and a bigot. The worst things you call somebody, you know, and now you realize it. And now you're like, it 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 took this for you to realize that. Like where, like where were you when it was like when Orthodox Jews were being beaten up in the streets of New York? But the the thing to do there is to say, like, you know, welcome home and let's build a better world. Like it's because you know, it's not about any individual person. It's about just, yeah, I love what you said though. If I could listen to them, maybe they could listen to me. I think that's the truth. And you know, I I've been talking to I have two very, very close friends who are Palestinian and We've been talking and one of them, I just, we've just been crying together. I mean, what are you going to say? Like, we don't agree about this. As he put it, we're both outraged at the moral equivalency, but from opposite directions. And I refuse to not love these people because of, I just can't, I'm not capable of doing it. I'm not, just not capable. And it's okay. It's okay to disagree with people about certain things, even things that are really, really important. And, you know. <laughs> are there topics that you shy away from? Like speaking about publicly? Yeah. Well, usually I don't talk about my family. So <laughs> really? I know I couldn't find much online about that. <laughs> I usually don't talk about anything personal because I'm very private. But um, yeah, I, I I'm very private. I don't I don't usually talk about like my personal life. <laughs> well, thank you for giving me a piece of that. Thank you for having me and for this wonderful podcast. Oh my gosh. I mean, I I actually, I mean, I know why. I mean, there's there's even podcasters that have completely anonymous shows. 
yeah. there's there's writers that change their name. It's so true. Have you thought about doing that um, or? No, you got to stand up for what you believe in. And I, you know, I was at an airport the other day and I wear a big Jewish star and I have a very close friend actually who's a Holocaust survivor. I call her every time about, to, I text her every time I'm about to go on TV so she could change the channel and watch me. She just loves seeing me. But the first time she saw me, she came up to me in shul. Like it, I was on TV, I think on a Friday morning or Thursday night, she came over to me in shul and she had tears in her eyes. And she said to me, I love what you had to say but I'm terrified for you wearing your star. Could you please take it off? I'm so scared for you. And I was like, I said to her, they should be scared of me. Like, this is my country. Like what the idea of me being scared of them, like never occurred to me. And I was at an airport last week, right after this happened. And, you know, I'm walking into the airport with my star and this woman who was waiting to check into a flight to Egypt in a hijab. And she was standing with like three men and she saw my star. I saw her see my star. And then she shouted at me, Palestine will be free. And I kept walking and I sort of chuckled to myself and I was thinking like, well, not if Egypt has anything to say <laughs> say about it, right? Like this isn't just in Israel. But I was thinking to myself, look, she had an accent. She's not American. She's leaving this country. America is just better than that. It's not like we're just better than that. You know, there's an amazing Muslim community in Brooklyn, an amazing Orthodox community in Brooklyn. When those attacks against Orthodox Jews were happening, they were not coming from the Muslim community. They were coming from young black men. Two thirds of the attacks were from young black men. Like it was not coming from the Muslims. And that probably has to do with socioeconomic factors. Both communities are extremely middle class. They have a lot to lose for getting into some. But I haven't heard anything of any attacks. I've been checking in with my Satmar friends. I've been checking in with Lubavitch Chabad friends from Crown Heights. Nobody has experienced anything. I ride the subway all the time. I have a big Jewish star. So I just think that you're, you know, I'm not saying be stupid, but like the people who really have the worst of it are the college students. Like they really are on the front lines because the hatred there is just so disgusting. And they're at a sensitive time when like making friends, being popular, not being hated, not being called racist is like extremely important. I mean, they're 18, right? It's very, very hard to, I'm thank God way past that. I've been hated for so long that I just... <laughs> I guess I'm not really faced by it anymore. I was scared to wear a Jewish star in Kentucky, and I remember going home and tucking it in. I hear that. Yeah, I don't think people should should take risks if they feel afraid. But I don't know. I have a lot of I've been thinking a lot about this. I wonder if you've been thinking about this, too. Like when Israel is like so under threat, you have this feeling of like, oh, should I go there? Is that the Jewish homeland? Do I belong there? Like, am I, you know, am I shirking my responsibility to live in Israel? But I it, to me, it was just like, no, I'm American through and through. Like, this is my country. This is my promised land. And if anti-Semitism gets so bad that Jews start fleeing America, I'm going down with this ship. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to. Hell no. yeah. Yeah, you like know they can't take this from us. <laughs> I love that. Also, talk to me a little bit about the American dream. Yeah, the American dream. Well, that's my next book. So you can have me back in April when it comes really? out. Yeah, it's actually called Promised Land, The Working Class Struggle for the American Dream. And it's about whether working class Americans still have a fair shot at the American dream. But my last book, Bad News, is about exactly what we saw this week, which is how the left wing media got so woke that they're actually regurgitating Hamas talking points. And it basically, it's about why our media is so terrible. But yeah, American Dream, much bigger, more important project. <laughs> It was interesting. I started reading your book. I just got it. And just seeing how I, I never thought of myself as racist just from my skin color. Yeah. They want you to believe all sorts of things. And it's just because it gives them power. And yeah, obviously they're wrong about Jews and wrong about everything else. 
So that hit me where I was like, and then too, just like the language we use and how that can be twisted so easily, especially in media. And I also heard you talk about, I wrote this down, how there's a tension between a spicy headline and just getting to the meat of the article and how, how can you balance that? Yeah, I think it's very similar to my own like internal struggle of like, should I be like Harif? Should I be like, you know, should I be, you know what I mean? Like getting to the point, venting spleen, or should I be speaking in a way that other people who don't agree with me already can hear? And I think it's the same thing with headlines. Like I, most of my job, my day job, I'm an editor, which means I'm soliciting op-eds from other people, editing them, putting a headline on them. And I'm very good at writing very trolly headlines. And the thing about a trolly headline is like everybody who agrees is going to repost it and share and be like, yeah, hell yeah. Like, you know, but also it's going to turn off a lot of people who might, you know, maybe be able to find some piece of truth in there. If the the headline wasn't literally like, and you hate babies, you know, like your side is so bad. Right. So it's now what we have at Newsweek, which I started in May is the daily debate, which is every day we have a debate on one of the major issues. And so then you can really go all out on the trolley headline because you have the other perspective right there. And I think that makes people feel recognized and feel a lot safer about clicking on something that (laughs) they know is not exactly for them. (laughs) That's a great idea. What spawned that? Just wanting to have to be fair and balanced. Balance doesn't mean like being in the safe, squishy middle. Balance means hearing how people who disagree with you think. So it's it's not about, oh, we're all kind of somewhere in the center. No, it's about like, here's how this person thinks, how, here's how this side sees it, and here's how this side sees it. And you get a choice. Like that's, that to me is what being fair and balanced means. And I, I think it's really important, you know, finding common ground through debate. Do you have any tips around that? Like, what are things that people can say to be more understanding and have those kinds of conversations? Yeah, the most important thing you can say is the most important thing you can do is recognize the other person's humanity. And I think that's what Mm. it's like when my Palestinian friend tweets things and when other people tweet the same thing, I feel like a murderous rage. And when I see he's tweeted it, I think, well, he loves me and he recognizes my humanity. So maybe that point of view is not completely inconsistent with like with me being safe and protected because he wants me to be safe and protected. And he still thinks that that's it. Like it's just recognizing people's humanity and convincing them that you see the world the way that they see it and that you have shared values. That is the most important thing. Just conveying love, like just conveying love and respect for their point of view. And that's very hard when people are angry because when they're angry at you, it's very hard. Like if someone's calling you a baby killer, it's very hard to be like, I see your humanity and I respect you. And I, I still, I can, I want to try to convince you that that's not right. Yeah. It's very hard, but it's very, very important. Nothing is more important. It's the most important thing is, and it's the hardest thing is just conveying love to people who really don't like you. I'm very bad at it. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about fact-checking? Because even that New York Times story that came out and they had to change their headline three times, like there are still people sticking to the original headline of Israel bombing the hospital. Well, what they would say is their headline said, Israel kills 500 in airstrike, comma, Palestinians say. So first of all, like none of those things turned out to be true, but also notice they say Palestinians, they mean Hamas, right? Like they're literally taking Hamas's work. Okay, fine. They're disgusting this aside, but they would say like, that's still literally true, right? Palestinians did say Israel killed 500 in a hospital blast. Now the legal standard that would never pass muster, right? If they had said like, they could not print a libelous allegation about somebody else and then say, this person says the fact that they printed it means that they are also liable 
responsible for the libel. But in terms of just their, I think that's the excuse they would make. They also posted a photo with it of a bombed out building in a different place in Gaza. They would say, well, we weren't intending to defraud people. This is Gaza. And it has like, you know, underneath it says like, you know, this is from Khan Yunus or whatever, wherever it was. I don't know where it was. So I think from a like very, very like, you know, mealy mouth, like, you know, bean counting, like a literal, you know, well, we didn't say anything that was like factually untrue, but they worked extremely hard to give the impression of an untruth. And it was bad journalism. Like you are not supposed to print something that you have not verified. I'm very proud to say Newsweek was the only mainstream outlet aside from Fox News that got this right from the beginning. There was never a headline at Newsweek that said, you know, Israel, Israeli strike kills 500 in hospital blast is Palestinians say. It just, the headline was what we know about, you know, the hospital. And I'm very, very, very proud of that. I had nothing to do with it. It's just our journalists, our professionals. Shout out to Tom O'Connor. That's awesome. I will say, like, there are reporters who I love their interview style and I respect their work and they still haven't taken it down. And that actually really um, yeah. bothers me. Yeah. But is it my place to send them the corrected one? Or if they have a million followers, should they do their due diligence? I think you could say, hey, I'm a person who really <laughs> respects and follows. You know, I follow you. I respect you. I love your interview stuff, like in a DM or something or in a public message. Like, I find it really offensive that this is still up. Could you explain your thinking here? Like what, you know, or would you consider issuing a correction? I love your work. And I, this is coming from a place of respect. I would love to keep being able to respect you as like a, a journal. You know, it's very, it's very painful to issue corrections. I had to do one about a month ago, I misread a poll and posted a video of myself on TV misrepresenting this poll. And I had to issue a correction. It's very painful. You feel really embarrassed and really stupid. But when everybody made the same mistake, you don't feel as embarrassed or as stupid. And apparently you don't feel the need to correct it. It's it's very, very disappointing. Yeah. I wonder if New York Times feels disappointed. I think the New York Times, I mean, there's a whole chapter in my book about this, but first <laughs> of all, they have a horrible history of burying atrocities against the Jews. They buried the Holocaust. They always blame everything on the Jews. But also the New York Times during the whole like racial reckoning realized that their newsroom was, I guess, too white. And so what they did was they hired a lot of people of color for ancillary roles. Like they didn't give them actually good journalism jobs. They gave them jobs in the photo editing department, in the social media departments, in the softer areas. And I think those people are all extremely, extremely left. They're all from, you know, elite universities and institutions. And the journalists feel extremely scared of upsetting those people. And I I think that that's kind of what you see a lot of is just just cowardly, cowardly journalists afraid of like that somebody in their own institution is going to like start a, a Twitter mob against them, which they have done repeatedly. And I think that's, yeah, it's very, very embarrassing for the New York Times. Somebody asked me, do I think that a bunch of Jews are going to cancel their subscription? I'm like, I don't know how many Jews they have left. Like, <laughs> you know, like I canceled in 2021. I was like, I'm out. I'm done. You know, like a lot of people got there before me, but and it was very hard to cancel. I mean, I, I read the New York Times every day of my adult life 20 years I don't know and it just sorry can't do it can't read articles by people who hate me like I refuse so I don't know how many Jews they have left to lose but they're gonna lose a lot of them what about your thoughts even about sending your kids to an Ivy League college horrible I mean it's just horrible 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 what's going on there I mean I was protested at Bard College like three or four years ago I don't remember when exactly it was like they just protested me because I was Jewish like I was there to talk about anti-semitism so I kind of knew it was there but you know I would be like well there's surely this is like a limited no it's everywhere and it's just disgusting and but you know the university system is is just it's like a cancer in American society it's just all yeah. I'm sure you saw it at Berkeley. Why? I didn't. What? 
I would be like, oh yeah, there's the apartheid wall. There would be like 20, I I didn't care at all. I don't know why. And I was like, it just, I never, I don't know if I was less political or if there was less of it or like, I just didn't, I mean, at UChicago, there was nothing, I don't think. And by the way, UChicago has been standing with its Jewish students. There was yesterday a huge rallying support that the provost went to. And, but yeah, I don't know why at Berkeley, I never, and also like the Jews there are extremely left. So it's like, there's this weird, like I was there recently. to give a talk and I was I they wanted me to give a talk on Sunday so I was like well you have to fly me out for you know before and I'll spend Shabbos with friends at Berkeley and boy was it like they were like just so so left and there was one there's one right winger at the shul who likes to give everyone a hard time and he he was like oh my god I recognize you from Fox News do these people know you go on Fox News I was like I don't know man It's a totally different place for sure. Wow. Do you want to give us a little bit of a preview of your next book? Yes. I traveled around the country for a year and interviewed working class people and asked them how they define the American dream and whether they think they have a fair shot at it. And basically, it's like an ethnography of the American working class. And oh, God, I'm so proud of it. And I can't wait for it to come out, although it's in a long time. But it's just like I just tried to tell people stories in their own words and then come up with kind of like a thesis about what went wrong and how we can make the American dream more accessible to more people. It turns out a lot of people do have are living the American dream working class people, a lot of them are struggling, and a lot of them are destitute. And so there's like a real diversity within the working class. And I tried to explain that and and come up with how we get more people from the bottom up into the top. And one of the most remarkable findings was that people who are working class really do not fit into either political party. So the vast majority of people I interviewed wanted a complete moratorium on immigration, legal and illegal, and universal health care. So when they go to the voting booth, it's kind of like a crapshoot. They can either do the party that cares about health care or the party that cares about immigration. But because of this, they're completely not polarized politically. Like they just completely don't care who people vote for. They don't think that way. It's a very elite way to think like, oh, are you a Republican or a Democrat? And it's very elite to be like, oh, whatever the checklist of ideas for a Democrat is, I believe with the Democratic Party about all of these things. They're not like that at all. They have like a very actually quite unified view of like what a political party would look like that would represent them. But it doesn't exist in this country because we're so the elites are so polarized. So that's kind of a preview. (laughs) Actually, I love it. The whole thing. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's it in a nutshell. That's awesome. Have you thought about what you want your legacy to be? Do you feel like oh that's it? Oh my gosh, it? no. I, I feel like I'm oh, way too young to <laughs> to be thinking that way. I just, I really, I don't know. I'm usually a very optimistic person. And right now I don't feel, but I think I'm just in a miasma of pain like every every other Jewish person. It just, like I, I haven't had a day yet that I was not crying and screaming in rage since this happened. And so it's very hard for me to think big picture right now. I just feel like I want the hostages to be freed and I can't really think much beyond that except like, yeah, people, people siding with Hamas are my enemies. I, it's like a very, I never thought of myself as a person who could like actually pull the trigger. Even if I was like under threat, I I would always be like, oh, I, I don't think I could. Now I feel like, no, I'm a person who could kill. Like if I saw one of those Hamas butchers and it's just like, it's, it's changed me to know that he, what human beings are capable of. I thought that society and civilization had progressed to a place where like, yeah, sociopaths could still do certain things, but the idea that you could get 3000 people to behave in that manner i i thought that we as a as a globe as a global community had progressed beyond that very naively so 
I feel very shattered to my core and like, I don't really know who I am anymore. And, and there's going to be a process of like, okay, who are, and it's funny, like talking about the book, I'm like, oh yeah, I spent a year writing this book, but it's like the furthest thing from my mind right now, but hopefully things will settle down and the hostages will be freed and I'll, I can go back to thinking about class all the time. I can really relate to that. And I have such a hard time with the other side that doesn't even mention at all the atrocities that have happened to Israel. Like that is completely left out of their argument. It honestly reminds me of when I worked at the Jerry Springer show and it was like each person had to stick to their story. So it was like, you're the good guy. You're the bad guy. You can't at all be a good guy. Like you are the bad guy. That's if you so switch funny. to the good guy, then your story doesn't work. Oh. So no matter what the other person says to you, you are the bad guy. <laughs> and that hilarious. was the formula, right? Like uh. there's a married couple and there's somebody that's the cheater. You know what I mean? And the crowd is going to hate you. You have to go after the crowd. Like you are the one they hate. So funny. And I feel like, you know, you see these people being interviewed and you're like, what about Israel? Like, what would be a proportionate response? Crickets. They can't at all mention Israel. They cannot. Like, that's not even a part of the argument. Yeah. It's just they're sticking to their story. They're sticking to their their rhetoric. And that isn't at all like something that they're going to talk about. And so that really bothers me. Yeah. Challenging time. <laughs> But I, I do appreciate that you get to show both sides and that you want to be a, a light in the darkness. And thank you, too, for getting personal with me today. That was really fun. <laughs> and one thing that I do at the end of every show is my dad will either like reflect on this whole conversation or you can have a question for my dad. So is there anything that you would like to ask him, you know, his generation, maybe even like his thoughts on this? Oh, I want to ask him, like, does he feel so proud of you? And like, what did he do like to make such an amazing daughter? And does he take credit for it? Or and were you always this inquisitive as a as a child? And did he foresee this as your future? And how does he feel about your religious practice? And I mean, mm. everything? Yeah, he should talk about that. That's really good. Thank you. <laughs> well, in the final edit of this, you will get your response. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. And please promote away, let people know how they can follow you and buy your book, all of that. Yeah, I haven't. It's funny because I, ha I have a clip that kind of went viral that was about the subject of my book. And I was like, you know, a better self-promoter would like drop a link in there. But I just can't bring myself to self-promote at this time and off of this tragedy. So I'm just going to, you know, mm -hmm. let people just, in, you know, enjoy this episode and the conversation. I hope they enjoy it. And you'll have me back when my next book is out and then people can, can buy that. <laughs> okay, cool. I would be honored. I'll put it in the show notes anyway. <laughs> You've heard from my mom. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Your interview is with Batya. You know, she makes it very clear that your words or your legacy, a great part of it can be what you record and what you put into words has an everlasting effect. In today's environment of communication with the internet, with podcasting, it used to be where you had to write books, okay? And then all of a sudden it's television, you know, and it's radio. But there are so many ways to communicate your ideas that when it's articulated correctly, and even when it's not articulated correctly, but where it has momentum, where you have people that get behind it, like, you know, again, it's like a wolf leading all the sheep over the cliff. It's a very, very powerful voice that can be heard by many. 
it can even block out the truth. Mm. And this is what your guest found unimaginable, is that through all of the lessons of history, of barbarism and about dehumanizing, you would think, especially if you have a positive ideology of life, that we would have graduated off of at least that level. What happened on 10-7 in Israel is so horrific and so dehumanizing at the absolute worst possible level. And it's in the year 2023, where we haven't gotten anywhere. And she says she has Palestinian friends, and yet the other side blocks out the atrocities and wants you still to feel sorry for the atrocities of war, which is a horrible thing. But when you have attacked and tried to annihilate people, what you end up getting is the reverse. It's like trying to wake up a sleepy giant. Whoever is the strongest is going to win out. They believe that they've been persecuted for 75 years. And the irony is that there was a war of independence where they wanted it all 75 years ago. But of course, there's a history that this has gone on in the homeland of Israel for over 2,000 years. There's been a battle by many different peoples. So for them to take claim like it's their land and that they have to have it all, that's why they have none. But the interesting part, as we might have even discussed in our own conversation, is that some of the people that were terrorized and killed that lived near Gaza, these Jews were actually pro-Palestinian. These were people that wanted to live in peace with the Palestinians. The girl that was released had helped take children and supplies and people to the hospital before and helped feed these people and worked with these people. And Batya is relating that that's the key. The key is that we have to look at everyone as a person with value. And this is what has to happen if there is going to be peace on earth, is that everyone has to be looked at, that every soul and every person has value. You have to remember the Hamas people that rule they have no value for Jewish lives, but they have proven that they have no value for Palestinian lives either. So these aren't type of people that can rule or get your message out. And just like if you're having a fight with someone or an argument, you could even be right on something. But if you yell and scream and you throw things or you shoot someone, it doesn't even matter if you were right. Your actions prove that you're wrong. That's part of the problem as well. But she has also been able to dissect a little bit the radicalism that's happening in our own country, that people aren't Republican or Democrat anymore. They're either very, very liberal or they're very, very, very conservative. And the two agendas, there's a lot of people in America that don't really care about either extreme, that they really want something more in the middle and where they address everyday problems without these extremes. And the only way to really get it out is to keep talking about it, is to keep podcasting about it and writing about it. And our media is also so far to the left that everything gets spun where you don't really get the true perspective of what someone is saying. It gets twisted. And it's very sad. But on the Better Call Daddy show, we try to have an honest discussion. We try to have a realistic discussion. And we try to see if we can all learn from each other because having an open-hearted truth and you pass that on 
it can be very powerful. Our message on the Better Call Daddy show is very powerful. And working together with Rena has been really wonderful with this show. And the fact is, is that because she's a free thinker and she's also experienced sometimes good choices, sometimes bad choices, but she learns and has a mind where she wants to do better. And hopefully the legacy that I've passed on to her is that she can be the best that she can be. She can reach the stars if she applies herself. And that same message was handed down to me. And we try to hand that down to our children. And hopefully she's doing a pretty good job handing it to her children. And that's the message. The message is we're here because there was a creator that wants to see if human beings can figure out by having the freedom of choice, which is a very tough instrument in itself, but to be able to see by using the freedom of choice that we can learn and develop to pick the right path. What the message from even God is, is for us to try to improve our choices so that we pick the right path where it's natural and where the experience and the history of the world and by writing it down and broadcasting it and seeing that all peoples have an opportunity to show that they all have value, there's a chance to have peace and where we can have a, a global unity. And yet it looks like the furthest from the truth right now with the way the, the extremities in all countries are, how hatred can rise to such a, a burning degree that everybody gets burnt by that. The, the whole destruction of the world is possible if it gets elevated and the fire gets out of control. But I think that having voices of sanity and enlightenment and logic still can win out if everybody is willing to listen to the truth and see the truth and value the truth and express the truth, there's hope. And question the truth, which was and encouraged in that's her right. house, which is kind of cool. And that's what we've done also. And that's what you've done in your house is that we're open-minded to many points of view and let's have a discussion about it and let's see if we can pass that wisdom through. God gave us the Torah. You know, the Jewish people in the very beginning did plenty of screw-ups even with the Torah, okay? And it took even 40 years in the desert before a fresh start could even go into the land of Israel because people can get such set in their ways where they can't see or hear the truth. It's also been like that for thousands of years. And it would be nice if we could all get a taste of some wisdom of the past. And, and isn't that what your dad has proclaimed? Is that at this point in my life, I'd like to be a little wiser and be able to pass some of that wisdom on to my children and my grandchildren and maybe great-grandchildren and to see the legacy of continuum go on because we're only here for a drop of time as it is. And we're trying to see if we can make, hopefully, a better future. And I think everyone in this world would like to see their children have a better future. But you have to value your children as having meaning and value and that they mean more in the future than even we do. But that's not how it is with a lot of people. A lot of people only see what's in front of their nose and unfortunately don't see the big picture in life. I think that this episode tries to show a little light that maybe even the political parties should figure out a way of compromising on some of these radical issues. Otherwise, they just stay there. They can stay there and smell for decades, for hundreds of years, and even thousands of years. Let's see if we can make some progress where it doesn't take 20, 30, 40 generations to graduate to a higher level. Amen. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. <laughs> 
I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's wrap for now.